If you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14 as we return to our study of the book of Exodus. Uh, when we last left off, we had came to, come to the point where uh, God had delivered His people uh, from their slavery and captivity there in Egypt, and they are now on their way to the promised land. And the last uh, text that we looked at here in Exodus 14 uh, was a picture there of God had called His people uh, to encamp on the banks of the Red Sea. And as they camped there, they looked up and noticed that now Pharaoh and his army were pursuing them, and they were very fearful and afraid. And so they cried out, they complained, and then the Lord spoke to them through Moses, telling them to fear not and to stand firm, that he was going to bring salvation to them on that day. And we will see how he brings salvation now through the Red Sea parting. So we're going to look at Exodus 14, verses 15 through 31, if you are able to, at a reverence for the Word of God, if you would stand this morning as I read this text for us. This is what the inspired Word of God says. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in a pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all of the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. If you would pray 
with me. Oh, Father, that, that we too might believe you today. That we might rest in your word and in the gospel. That we might see it and repent and believe. Lord, that is our prayer as we look to this word today. And we ask, God, that you might fulfill it through the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we come now to this section of Exodus, we come to probably one of the most well-known places in Exodus. In fact, if you were to ask someone who had little to no knowledge of the Scripture, if they knew anything about the Exodus, they may be able to tell you at least about the Red Sea. And yet, as well known as it is, it is also one of the places in the Scripture where we see a great deal of skepticism, a great deal of doubt. Especially when you turn to our culture today, you find many who believe that what I just read to you is nothing more than a myth. That was the topic of one article I read several years ago in the New York Times titled, Did the Red Sea Part? No evidence, archaeologists say. That New York Times article went on to interview several different archaeologists who said that we really have no record in the Egyptian history that something like this took place. And since they did not write this down, it must not have happened. Therefore, it is a myth. Another article just a couple years ago I read pointed out that perhaps the Red Sea parting wasn't a myth, but it was far from miraculous. One Washington Post article titled this, No, really, there is scientific, a scientific explanation for the parting of the Red Sea in Exodus. Now, that article went on to describe how a Red Sea can be translated in the Hebrew as Sea of Reeds. And if you look at that historically, you may find that a Sea of Reeds is very shallow. And therefore, what really took place here uh, may have happened, just not quite as miraculous as the Scripture says it did. Another article along those same lines in the Wall Street Journal was titled, How Did Moses Part the Red Sea? Their expert, Dr. Bruce Carter, former chief scientist for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, explained that the way uh, that Moses and the people uh, walked across the Red Sea was that Moses knew the tides, and he knew when the tide would be extremely low. And then once that tide was low enough, well, then the people were able to cross it. Even Dr. Carter noted this about his own theory. If the tide was indeed involved in Moses' parting of the Red Sea, it has to qualify as the most dramatic and consequential tide prediction in history. These skeptics and skepticisms aren't limited to those in our culture. They are within the church as well. I read a story not long ago about one liberal pastor who did not believe in miracles and yet he was preaching on this very text. He found himself in a church that was far more conservative than he was. And so as he began to read about Exodus 14, uh, someone in the church uh, jumped up and shouted, Praise the Lord! Uh, what a miraculous thing that God took his children through the deep waters of the Red Sea. That pastor, not believing in miracles, uh, rather condescendingly were responded to that gentleman and said it was not a miracle. It was marshland, the tide was low, and the children made their way across about six inches of water. Without hesitation, that man responded, Praise the Lord, an even greater miracle. God drowned Pharaoh and all those people in six inches of water. <laughs> See, you really can't have one without the other. 
If you attempt to take the parting of the Red Sea and, and, and minimalize it, take away from what the Scripture says about it, uh, try to somehow uh, rationalize this out to they parted a, a, a low area, a low tide, a, a sea of reeds, well then, what do you do with what the Scripture tells us about what happened to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army? You notice in Exodus 14, as I read that, there, there's a great emphasis here on God bringing judgment against Pharaoh and against his chariots and against his horsemen. And so if we take away from this text, we're not just taking away from this text, we're really taking away from the Scripture as a whole. In fact, when you study the Old Testament, you find that there's at least two dozen references to the Red Sea parting. We read one of those in our call to worship in Psalm 106. But not just in the Old Testament, we find in the New Testament as well references specifically to what we read in Exodus 14 this morning. In fact, when you read the book of Acts, you may remember from our study there, uh, Stephen, as he is about to be martyred for his faith, is giving testimony to how all of the scriptures point to Jesus. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 36, Stephen says this, that Moses led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. You notice there that Stephen doesn't get real specific about the miracles in Egypt, the miracles in the wilderness, but he specifically points out the miracle of the Red Sea. The writer of Hebrews, also Hebrews eleven twenty nine, 29, says this, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. And then we read Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, who tells us for... I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now these things took place as examples for us. I point these passages out to, to make this clear. If you discount Exodus 14, you discount the Scripture. If you try to take this text and say, well, it didn't necessarily have to happen that way, then you take away, not just from Exodus 14, you take away from the Scripture as a whole. But it's not just that. If you discount Exodus 14, you miss a glorious picture of the Gospel. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. We could spend our time today going over research about how to translate Hebrew words and, and why I don't believe this is referring to a sea of reeds. We could go against counter-arguments to all those articles that have appeared in newspapers that I mentioned at the beginning. But I think the most fruitful thing for us today is to see how the Red Sea parting is one of the clearest illustrations we have in the Scripture, one of the clearest foretellings we have in the Scripture, of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And hopes that God might make that gospel more clear to us. And so we'll begin with the first point there in your outline. The Red Sea parting is a picture of how God saves us from death. Of how God saves us from death. Now this is a picture we've seen throughout the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 1, uh, there is death. Uh, the Pharaoh has ordered the death of the newborn Hebrews and, and, and they need deliverance, they need salvation, they can't save themselves. And so God does what? He, he sends them a rescuer, a deliverer. In fact, he rescues one of those babies who's supposed to be cast into the Nile through the faith of his mother, through the provision of God. That baby Moses lives. 
and is put in a position later to be this deliverer that God will use to rescue his people. We see how God's people are surrounded by death and dying and slavery and how God rescues them from that death. We see how God brings judgment on Pharaoh and on Egypt and on the Egyptian gods. He brings death to them, but all the while, he protects his people. And we see it so clearly in that final plague where God sends the destroyer throughout Egypt to kill the firstborn. And as he does that, he provides salvation for his people through their faith and through the Passover lamb. And so we continue to see this God saving from death as we come into Exodus 14. Because now the people are literally surrounded by death. And you may remember when we looked at this text last, we talked about how you have the people there, and they're really between one option for death and another option for death. Uh, they're there at the banks of the Red Sea, and left to themselves, the Red Sea is death. They can't cross that sea on their own. And then they look off, and in the distance, here comes Pharaoh and his chariots and his army, and they know with that he's going to bring death to them. And so there in that moment... They begin to worry and they begin to doubt. In fact, we talked before about how the Hebrews were much like we are. They are so quick to forget about God's saving works in the past. And they begin to complain, they begin to grumble, and yet God is faithful and he rescues them. And you notice how he does that. In verse 16, he tells Moses to, to lift up his staff and to stretch out his hand over the sea. He is literally going to part the Red Sea. This wind will drive through it. In fact, the scripture is specific enough to say the people will cross on dry ground. And you just picture that for a moment. I imagine most of us in this room have been to some coastal area at some point where there's a high tide and a low tide, and you can see how when the tide grows out, that the ground there is still wet. That that ocean floor that's been exposed is still thick and wet. And yet the scripture tells us here that God works in such a miraculous way that that sea literally parts and the ground is dry. But then you notice what he says. He says the, the Egyptians, verse 17, he's going to harden their hearts so that they go in after them. I don't know about you, but if I'm one of the Hebrews, I might be thinking, well, wait a second, God, are you going to save us or you're not going to save us? <laughs> Now, on one hand, you're saying you're going to part the sea so we can get away from them. But now you're saying you're going to harden their hearts so that they come after us. But notice what God's doing here. Ultimately, he's going to rescue them from these folks who are pursuing them by destroying them. And the way he's going to destroy them is by protecting his people. And at the same time he's protecting them and providing salvation for them, he's going to bring judgment on the Egyptians. And look at verse 19. It says, Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. We talked about this before, how you have the very presence of God and that pillar of fire and that pillar of smoke who went before God's people and led God's people. But now God says that his presence is going to go behind them. Now, this is not God retreating. This is God protecting. Because what then happens is amazing. That this pillar of cloud and of fire is between them in the night so that, verse 20, it actually lit up the night for God's people, but it kept those behind them in total darkness. And so what we have here is a picture 
of how God is securing his people while he's bringing salvation to them. And at the same time he's bringing salvation to them, he's bringing judgment on the Egyptians. And you'll notice God is doing this like he's done this before. Through the water. Through the sea. You think back to Noah in the flood. What does God do there? He brings judgment on man's wickedness through the water and through drowning them in the sea. But at the same time, he provides salvation for Noah and his family through the water, through the sea, by placing them in the safety of that ark. And here, God is providing an ark for his people. He has opened up that sea so that they can walk through it safely. And as he brings them salvation, he's bringing judgment on the wicked. This, friends, is a picture of the gospel. There are many in the church today who long for the return of Jesus Christ. And we speak of the return of Christ as Christ making all things right and bringing salvation and rescuing his people. And those are all things we should hold fast to. But we must also recognize when we speak of the return of Christ and Christ bringing salvation to his people, that when Christ returns, he's also bringing judgment to the wicked. And the scripture says, all of us in this room were born wicked. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it is only by the grace of God that he has rescued us through his son. And so at his return, we, we glory in that. We long for that. But we must remember with his return also comes judgment. And so we see this picture here of the gospel of God bringing salvation and bringing judgment of God using the water. Even this picture of man passing through the water as a means of salvation. Now that, friends, points us even towards Christian baptism. It's not baptism that saves us, but baptism is a picture of our salvation. And notice here, God is leading his people through the water as a means of their salvation. One commentator I read noted this about it. He said Paul was making a connection in 1 Corinthians 10, that passage we read earlier, between Exodus and baptism. For the Israelites, passing through the Red Sea was a type of baptism. Thus, it forecast our final deliverance in Christ. See, what I hope you're seeing here as we look at this text is it's pointing us through an understanding of what God has done in the gospel. And it's the second point I put there in your outlines, that, that through the gospel, God delivers us from bondage. God delivers us from bondage. The Israelites were in bondage in Egypt. For 430 years, they were in Egypt. And much of that time, they were slaves to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. They could not rescue themselves they could not band together one day and say, you know what, we're, we're just tired of slavery, so we're just going to march ourselves out of Egypt, and we're just going to head out to a land of promise. No, they had a slave master who lorded over them in Pharaoh. And so God sends this rescuer, this deliverer, to set them free. But notice what happens is they're set free that this old slave master, this Pharaoh, he wants them back. And so what we see here in Exodus 14 is this old master comes pursuing them. He's coming after them. Now you would think as soon as they see that, they want to have nothing to do with him. But notice how they respond. Verse 11. 
They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us out to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? And so God's people, after hundreds of years of slavery and bondage, are finally set free. But as soon as this old master comes after them, they immediately start saying, Why'd you take us away? It was a whole lot better back there. In fact, you'll see that as we continue in the Exodus. The people, as they groan and complain, they will ultimately say, We want to go back. And friends, left to ourselves, we say the same thing. And that's why it is so critical that we understand the gospel and the foundation of the gospel. And the foundation is this. God saves us. We do not save ourselves. You have absolutely nothing to do with your salvation. And if you think you do, and if you hold firm to that, and if you're holding on to, well, no, I know I'm saved because of what I did. I know I'm saved because of this thing. If you're holding on to your efforts, if you think for a second that you're going to stand before a holy God, then He's going to look at you and say, well, you tried really hard. If you think that the measure of salvation rests in your ability or your power, then you don't understand the gospel from the Scripture. And the sad reality is, is that if you don't get it today, you're just not going to get it. And that same coming of salvation for many will be a coming of judgment on you. And so we have to understand what's taking place here. This is a picture of what God does in the gospel. So notice, God's try, God, God is saving the people, but as He's saving them, they're, well, you know, we should have stayed there. It was so much better there. Why would you ever take us from there? And what's God doing? God is not the frustrated parent here, okay? Any parents in this room ever gotten frustrated? Two of you. Me, three, okay? You get frustrated, what do you do? Oh, you want it better? Well, you can just go back there then, can't you? Oh, well, you know. Oh, and we come up with these goofy things. Many of them we don't follow up. We, we get frustrated. We get angry. We say, oh, oh, that's what you want? Well, that's what you can have. But notice God here in His providence and His care and His mercy and His grace as the people are crying out and complaining. What does He do? I'm still going to save you. <laughs> I'm still going to save you. And that's exactly what he does. And friends, that is a picture of our salvation. Our salvation completely rests in the work of God. And because it rests in the work of God, it is held tight by the work of God. I so often get this question at times from people who say, well, well Pastor, but, but, but can't somebody lose their salvation? I mean, what about so-and-so? I mean, don't, but don't, don't you think? I mean, this person says they're a Christian, but look at what they're... I mean, it, isn't it possible for somebody to lose it? Friends, you, you can't lose what wasn't yours to begin with. And salvation completely and entirely belongs to the Lord, and it is by His hand and His power that we are saved. And what God does, you and I can't undo. And so if you struggle because someone walked an aisle when they were eight and they've been living like a heathen ever since, well, struggle no more. They're lost. 
If you for a second are taking comfort in a VBS role from 40 years ago, take no more comfort. The Scripture is clear what the fruit of salvation looks like. But also take comfort in this. If you indeed have trusted in Christ, if you have repented and placed your faith fully in Him, you need not wonder, you need not fret. You are saved and saved indeed. Pastor John Piper said it well. He says this, if we could lose our salvation, we would. And you see it in these people who are grumbling and complaining all the while God is saving them. And they're on the banks of their salvation. Well, we just we wish we could go back. It's such a picture of the gospel. It's that picture, as we've noted here, of how God secures us. It says once we come to faith in Christ, we are in the Son's hand, we are in the Father's hand. No one can snatch us out of His hand. What can separate us from the love of God? Absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so we are secure in the hand of God. God secures His people, but not just that. Notice here, He he delivers them despite their lack of faith. Even though they struggle in their faith, He still delivers them. In fact, He he delivers them irregardless of how much faith they have. He, He says to them, through Moses, it's time to go forward. And for every Israelite who took that step of faith and went forward on that dry land, They were saved irregardless of who had more faith than another. And so picture this for a moment. You have hundreds of thousands of Hebrews walking through a sea, dry land. There are walls of water on their right and on their left. And you have some who are walking through that and are looking at that saying, Have you ever seen anything like this? This is amazing. Look, there's the water. And then there's dry land, and there's the water, and we're walking through it. God is amazing. Look at what our Lord has done. Kids, do you see this? Get get off your phone for a second, just, you know. But friends, just as you have people like that, there were likely Hebrews walking every step of the way, freaking out. Oh no, oh no, oh no! Oh, it's going to fall on us. That water's coming down any second. We're not even halfway yet. I'm going back. I don't know about you. And so at the same time, you have people who are fretting it and people who are amazed by it. And who does God save? He saves them both. Because the salvation that God offers is not dependent on the degree of faith that you and I have. And so if you're here this morning and you're just inching along and you're freaking out and you're worried and you're anxious and you doubt sometimes and when your old master comes calling, a lot of times you just want to go back with them, but but you continue to believe and trust because God has sealed you and God holds you and you hold on to that truth even when you don't feel like it, whether that's you Or you're the person who just is so excited and growing in their faith and so secure and you're just moving forward, pressing on, reading the Word, praying, sharing the Gospel, going to the world with the Gospel. Regardless of which one of those you are, your salvation is held by God. Because it's not the amount of faith you have, it's who you have your faith in. And we see such a picture of that 
and God's deliverance here of his people. And ultimately, the picture we hear, see here, the place I want us to go is this point three, that, that we see and understand from this word, this, this picture of a mediator. See, we, we learn from this text, or what it points us towards is that Jesus is our mediator who saves us and delivers us. And so in Exodus 14, you have, you have the significance here of a mediator. Uh, Moses is the mediator of God's people. And so Moses would go before God on behalf of the people. That's the picture we've seen throughout Exodus, that God doesn't speak directly to all the people. He speaks through Moses. Moses speaks to the people. He's the mediator. And so God, or, or Moses, stands before God as a representative of the people. And, and notice how that works. Fifth, verse 15 there. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Now, if you follow the text there, you'll notice that Moses didn't cry to God. It's the people who cried to God. In fact, I think what we see here is a Moses who has matured, who's more faithful. In fact, in just a moment, uh, God's going to say, Moses, uh, stretch out that staff across the sea and I'm going to part it. And Moses, according to Scripture here, doesn't question God like he's questioning him before. He just does it. He, he trusts in God. And yet, what we read here in verse 15 is that God rebukes Moses for crying out to him. Why is that? Well, it's because, I believe, uh, Moses here is a representative of the people. He's the mediator. And so it doesn't matter whether Moses has cried out or not. The people have. Moses stands on behalf of the people before God. Therefore, God rebukes Moses on behalf of the people. Now, that's how it works in being the mediator. But he's not just the mediator from the people to God. He's also the mediator from God to the people because it's through Moses that God shows his power. And so... Hopefully you recognize that, that God could have saved his people any way he wanted here. I mean, God didn't need to part the Red Sea. God could have just levitated his people across the Red Sea. You know? In fact, God could have said, uh, you know, everybody close your eyes and think of a happy place, and bleep, you know, then they're in their promised land. And God's God. God can do whatever he wants to do. But it's significant here that God uses a mediator, a man, to show his power to the people. And it's because I believe what God is doing through the Red Sea partings, he is, He's pointing His people, and He's pointing us today to Jesus Christ, who is our mediator. See, Moses was fully man and close to God. Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God. Moses goes before God on behalf of the people, and God rebukes him because in that case Moses hadn't done anything wrong, but there are lots of other times when Moses had done things wrong. Moses was a sinner. But Jesus, as our mediator, goes before God as him who knew no sin. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5 makes it clear, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so as our mediator... What Jesus does is he's perfect and he's sinless. And so he's the only one qualified as fully man and fully God to go to the cross and die for our sins. Yeah. I like to think I'm a pretty good guy sometimes. And, and let's say that I did, this is heresy, so this qualified as that, but let's say I lived a sinless life. As a man, I lived a sinless life. So, Nick hasn't. 
newsflash there, in case you didn't know. And so I come to Nick and I say, Nick, you know, I know you've struggled, I know you've sinned, but my goodness, I, I don't want you to be condemned to hell for your sin, and I've, I've lived a perfect life, so Nick, I'm going to die in your place. And Nick would say, sure, I'll take that. And so as a perfect man, I could die for the sins of one. But I couldn't die for everybody. You see, a debt has to be paid. Only one person can pay it. It takes someone who's fully God and fully man to pay for the sins of the world. And that's what Christ did as our mediator. He went to the cross and he paid the debt that you and I owed. And this beautiful, great exchange takes place. Where Christ takes on our sin. And as we repent and have faith, then we receive his righteousness. And so now we can have a clear standing before God, not based on our works, our deeds, our efforts, but based on Christ and Christ alone. And it's this beautiful exchange in the gospel. And if that is foreign to you this morning, it doesn't mean that you're confused about the gospel. It means you don't really understand the gospel. Because the gospel is not a message of God helping you out are getting you the rest of the way across. The gospel is not the, the people rescuing themselves from slavery and getting all the way to the Red Sea, but then needing a little help, so God just jumps in to help them then. Now the gospel is that Christ and Christ alone has freed us from our sin and paid the due penalty that we owe. But just like the Hebrews here had to trust Moses and step out in faith and walk across that sea, we too have to place our faith in Jesus and walk in repentance and faith as well. And so the question for you and I this morning as we look to this text is this, have you indeed placed your trust in Jesus Christ? About a year ago, <clears throat> I was with Chris Coulter. We were in West Africa in a remote village, we were sitting there with a small group of people who were the only Christians in that whole village, surrounded by people who considered them uh, heretics, who, who wouldn't do business with them, who, who threatened them because of their stand for Christ. Not far from their village, other villages where people were killed for being Christians. And as we're sitting there and we're talking and I'm looking for ways I can encourage them in their faith, they, they asked me a question. And they said, Pastor, what's, what's the hardest thing about ministry where you live? Now, I, I was very humbled by this question because, again, when, when I asked them what's hard about ministry for them, it's this life and death stuff. And so I was humbled that they would ask me what's hard for me. And as I thought about it, this is what I said. The hardest thing for me in ministry in Bloomfield, Kentucky is that everybody thinks they're saved in Bloomfield, Kentucky. And the hardest thing for me about pastoring this church is that everybody thinks they're saved in this church. And so when I talk about have you placed your trust in Jesus Christ, your natural impulse is... Well, I sure hope they have. And when I get into the gospel and start calling people to repentance and faith, so many of you this morning think, well, I sure hope somebody does this. 
Friends, are you confident that you've done that? Do you rest secure? Do you lay your head down at night confident that you indeed are a Christian? Because you have repented and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus? Because you walk by faith with Him? Or is your confidence in an aisle you walked 40 years ago? Or a pool you got dunked in 10 years ago? Or because your mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or uncle or aunt say, Oh yeah, well I remember you doing that at church. The hardest thing for me in ministry is that everybody around here thinks they're saved. And friends, the reality is this. The path is narrow. And I take no joy in this statement. The likelihood is some of you, perhaps many of us, will be flooded under the waters of damnation for our sins. Because we refuse, for whatever reason, whether it's our our pride, our foolishness, our ignorance, we refuse to humble ourselves before the cross of Jesus Christ. And we invest so much of our life in the things of this world that will not last. And friend, my fear for you is that you won't get that until it's too late to get that. And if you ask yourself today, well, how, how do I know? Are there any indicators? The scripture says absolutely. Galatians chapter 5 is a passage we go to often because it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. But Galatians 5 also talks about the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are the things that let us know, no, I'm still of the world. I am indeed lost. Galatians 5, 19 through 24. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And you may hear, well, I'm not a sorcerer, you know. Well, let's keep going. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries dissensions, divisions. Friends, think about how often you hear these words together. Church split. Some of the most divisive people I've ever met in my life held membership at a Baptist church. But based on Galatians 5, they did not hold membership in the kingdom of God. Envy, drunkenness, The list goes on. He says, I warn you as I warned you before. Paul is pleading here that you who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. My goal this morning is not to scare you or worry you. My goal is simply this, to make the gospel clear to you that you might respond in repentance and faith. Because friends, I want us to walk through the sea together. And I want to be in eternity rejoicing with this body. And look back, and the songs we sing today are the songs we continue to sing. Through many trials and toys, toils and snares, I have already come. 
But my faith doesn't rest in that. It rests in Christ who will deliver me through those and deliver me through much more because I am indeed His. Are you His today? A word of encouragement as we close. John chapter 5. Here's the good news. Jesus says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Friends, this is something that I want every one of us to consider today. Have you indeed passed from death to life? And if you have, then rejoice and sing and be glad. But if you have not, then what else do you need to hear? And what else do you need to know before you place your trust in Christ and repent? I pray that God's Spirit would do a work in us as you stand together. And I pray for us today.